invite you to open your Bible with me this morning to Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14, if you remember two weeks ago, we looked at the first 24 verses as uh, Jesus was just uh, making hash of a dinner party. Uh, He was invited to a Pharisee's home after, uh, on a Sabbath day after the service, and um, he immediately uh, was challenged with a man with dropsy, if you remember, a a man who was seriously ill, and and, uh, Jesus... uh, puts the question to him, is it lawful to do, uh, to heal on the Sabbath? And they were watching to see what he would do, and he did exactly what they had uh, thought he would do and hoped he would do. He healed the man, sent him on his way, and, um, and then just went to work on, on um, these, the Pharisees. Which of you, if you had a son fall into a pit, wouldn't pull him out on the Sabbath day? And just shows the, the twisted nature of their religion and the self-interest that drove them. And then he turns to the guys who are making a dash for the best seats at the table. And uh, it says, don't be, don't be going after the seats of honor. Uh, you go sit down on tab- table 27, if you remember, and let, let someone else come and bring you up to uh, the front if they would like to do that. And then he turns his attention to the host and says, don't just invite your friends and, and the people who can pay you back. Invite the people who can't pay you back. He's, he's just making um, havoc of this dinner party. And finally, somebody pipes up and says, well, let's just agree on this thing. Blessed is the man who eats in the kingdom of heaven. Let's just, we can all agree on that. And Jesus takes that statement and, and puts it to them. Well, who's going to be that man? Who gets to eat in the kingdom of heaven? Because they all assumed, of course, that they, that was, they were there. They were in. They were Jews. They were they're Abraham's descendants. And Jesus tells a story then of, of an uh, invitation that a master gave to a banquet, and he sends the servant out to say, well, it's, it's, it's time, and the so servant goes out, and yet excuse after excuse, well, I, I can't come, I just, uh, I just got married, can't come, I just bought a field, can't come, just got five, bought some oxen, need to go uh, take a look at them, I'd love to be there, but it's not going to be possible this time, and the master was very angry and invites the people from the streets and the hedges, the, disrep- the, the people with, um, with bad reputations and ruined lives. He invites them to come. And so we just saw that principle of, of self-interest, how it fights against the things of God. And now Jesus is, is going to continue that theme and talk about what does a disciple look like? What does a disciple look like? Let's turn our attention then to Luke chapter 14. We're going to pick it up at verse 25. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. 
Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. Throw it away. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Lord Jesus, these are your words, and we want to receive them in faith and with repentance. You lay before us today life for death. And Lord, I pray that by your grace and through your spirit, these might be words of life to us today as we submit ourselves to them. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. There are some days uh, as a preacher when... um, you're just going through a book of the Bible, and you come to texts that you wish you didn't have to preach. Um, I, I'm not there. I'm, uh, it's a privilege to be able to preach God's Word. And yet this morning, uh, I think you may have noticed these are pretty strong words of Jesus. And they're meant to be strong words of Jesus. And uh, this morning, uh, the Lord is going to step on some toes He means to step on toes. And the reason he's doing this is because, you see, he has a passion that we might live. Uh, These are are hard words. They're um, challenging, convicting, maybe even, even frightening. And there's a temptation when we hear really hard words of Jesus... I think there's a temptation to emotionally steel ourselves to sort of prepare that whatever, um, whatever comes now from the pulpit, you maybe will hear it, but somewhere down inside where you haven't really, really thought about it, you've maybe made a, a secret decision that this isn't going to really have an impact, it's not really going to have an effect what if that whatever, whatever gets said this morning, you'll hear, you'll agree with what you agree with, you'll disagree with what you disagree with, but that will pretty much be the extent of it. And that would be a tragedy. Because Jesus means to change your life by his words. He means to change my life. We have to just recognize that what Jesus says this morning is the truth. He always tells the truth. He never, ever exaggerates. He doesn't dilute the truth either by understatement or or by overstatement. Jesus says what he means always, always. And we we need to remember that the Jesus who is speaking here, you see, is, is the Jesus who gave his life to rescue sinners like you and me from sin. Jesus did not come to these people on this day in this place, in Luke chapter 14, because he was just trying to heckle them with some spiritual ideas or truths. He's not a Pharisee simply uh, trying to lay more burdens on the people. 
That there are laws and rules that they've neglected, they haven't really paid attention to, and he's there to lay those burdens on them. Jesus is here because he wants them to live. And he says hard things because he's trying to break through the assumptions that they've made, the false assumptions that they carry concerning who they are and God's disposition toward them and how to find life. In their mind, finding life was just to be a good Jew for so many of them. But of course, that can't save anyone. And Jesus' desire here for these people is a desire of love. We know that because he weeps over these people as he's going to make his way to the cross. His desire for you today and for me today is, is exactly the same. He wants us to live. I do not presume this morning that all of you are Christians. And I don't presume either that all of those who do profess Christ, uh, faith in Christ, I, I, I don't presume that that all of you are truly disciples of Christ. It's just a fact that many profess Christ who, who actually are not following. And I know for a fact that even those who are devoted disciples of Jesus Christ, who do, do love Him and want to serve Him, I know for a fact because I live this life, that we are tempted daily to turn away from discipleship. We're tempted daily to lay down the cross, to love other things more than Jesus to neglect and turn aside from the path of sacrifice. We are tempted daily to pursue our, pursue our own self-interests. And then on Sunday, maybe we'll come and think about the things of God again. You see, wherever you are this morning, Jesus knows where you are. He knows who you are. He knows how you got here. And Jesus wants you to live. And so he speaks to you today and to me today in order to rescue us, in order to preserve us. His desire is that we should not perish, but have everlasting life. That's what he wants. And so this morning, he's going to talk to us about discipleship. First, a disciple's priorities. We read, now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned aside and said to them, Jesus joined great crowds. People are everywhere. Uh, they're astonished at Jesus. They've never seen anything like it. And so they bring their sick and the lame, and Jesus heals them, and they are astonished at his power. They watch Jesus engage with the Pharisees. They, they watch Jesus just shut them down and, and shame them and expose them as the hypocrites that they are, and they delight in his wisdom. They delight in his courage. They love Jesus in his war with the Pharisees, these, these pompous, hypocritical uh, men. They listen to his teaching. They're amazed at his knowledge. They, they're, they're, they cannot believe the spiritual authority with which he speaks. There's power that comes in Jesus' teaching. And so the people are talking. This is a great prophet of God. This is we haven't seen anything like this since Elijah. Some are saying this is Elijah, come back in the flesh. The rumor is even going about that this is possibly the Messiah of God. So you can picture the scene. Jesus is walking and there is a great crowd, multitudes, people on every side. And Jesus suddenly stops and he turns, the text says, and he said to them, and then out of his mouth come these incredibly hard words. 
And it's, it's evident immediately, you see, that Jesus is not really that impressed with crowds. He didn't come looking for crowds. He came looking for disciples. And so he's, he's not really interested in just the curious. He didn't come seeking the intrigued or even the amazed. He came seeking disciples, real disciples. Because only real disciples are going to be saved. Only real disciples will be saved. So what is a real disciple? Well, a real disciple of Jesus is someone who has determined that Jesus is simply and purely the most essential thing in life and then proceeds to act on that. So a real disciple will do things like you find the disciples doing. Jesus finds them fishing or he finds them at the tax collector booth and Jesus says to them, you come follow me. And what do they do? They put down the nets, they step out of the booth, and they follow Jesus. And they don't know much about him yet. And there's something in the tone of his voice, something in the authority with which he speaks, that they understand suddenly that, that there's nothing more important in all their life than that they should follow this man. And so that's what they do. That's what disciples do. Well, Jesus makes this point using graphic language, verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yea, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, those words have been used by uh, some who, uh, who mock Christ. Uh, they've been used to ridicule Jesus. How can you say that Jesus is good when he tells People, they have to hate their own families. I mean, that goes against every natural human disposition. This is, this is, this is a cult. You've got to hate your parents. You have to hate your wife. You have to hate your children. And they'll just, they'll just laugh. Well, how would you respond to that? Because that's what he says. What does it mean? Well, if, if these men would simply take the time to actually study the Bible and, and, uh, and research it, they'd quickly find out what it means. You see, whenever you come to a place in Scripture where you don't get what it means, look for other places in Scripture that speak to a similar thing or the very same thing, and um, you'll quickly learn that Scripture interprets itself. And that's what we have here. If you turn in your Bible to Matthew chapter 10, Matthew chapter 10, verses 37 and following, we have here a parallel teaching where Jesus says the same thing in different language that, that helps us understand what he means here. Matthew chapter 10, verse 37. Just if you think about what we know about Jesus, uh, the way he wants us to act towards family members, we know that Jesus upholds the law, so he wants us to honor our fathers and mothers. We know that he wants us to love other people as we love ourselves, love our neighbor as we love ourselves. Well, look at what he says here in Matthew 10, 37. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. This parallel text says exactly the same thing, but in different language. And here we see that uh, what hate means is to, um, it's, a, it's a preferential term. It, it's a common Jewish idiom that means to love less. 
So to hate someone isn't to have these strong feelings of revulsion or desire to do someone harm. It means you love them less. You find that exact usage in Genesis chapter 29, where in verse 30 we read, Now Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. He loved Leah. Some. She was his wife. But he loved Rachel. He loved Rachel more than he loved Leah. And the very next verse then, in verse 31 of Genesis 29, it says, Now that when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb. Well, I thought, yeah. To hate someone is to have, to love them less. It's to have less interest, less concern, less devotion, less desire. In comparison to the one that you truly love, that you truly are devoted to, that you most deeply desire. You find the same thing in Romans chapter 9 when when the Bible says, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. It doesn't mean that God in heaven has this, this passionate hatred of Esau. It means that he has a passionate love for Jacob. And in comparison of his love for Jacob, the idioms means that, that Jacob is the preferred one and, and stands above And he does not have that same desire and concern and passion for Esau. So that's what it means here that, as he says in Matthew Matthew chapter 7, whoever loves any family member more than me, if you love a family member more than you love Jesus, you hate Jesus. In Jesus' language. Thomas Boston says, No man can be a true disciple of Christ to whom Christ is not dearer than what is dearest to him in this world. No man can be a true disciple of Christ to whom Christ is not dearer than what is dearest to him in this world. Friends, this is a strong word for West Michigan. Family is a big deal around here, and I'm thankful for that. Family is a great gift from God. Family is meant to be enjoyed. But marriage and family Wives, husbands, children, grandchildren easily become idols, and I don't think we even sense it. There are too many men and women in, uh, in West Michigan, that's not just here, but who, because marriage is such a prize, such a thing to be sought for because there's a conviction that life is found in marriage make foolish choices about who that person will be they would rather marry foolishly than wait on the lord there are christian parents who will not speak gospel truth into the lives of disobedient adult children because they are afraid of losing them That's loving family more than Jesus. I remember, I think I've told you this before, about a year or so ago, I did a funeral for my cousin, Nellie, who was born and raised in the church and then spent most of her adult life just living for the world. And my Aunt Jenny, who'd already lost her husband, sat Nellie down and said, Nell, if you don't repent, you're going to hell. And Nellie was very offended by that. And yet the Lord was one of the things that God used in Nell's life to help her consider her state 
and she repented and turned, and then she got cancer and a year later died. But died in faith. Parents can easily excuse themselves from speaking gospel truth for fear of losing a child. There are Christian parents in West Michigan, and this is much just increasingly so, who allow a children's sporting schedule or extracurricular activities or family time to take priority over joining God's people for the public worship of God and the means of grace. That's just a fact. Sunday service, particularly Sunday evening service, has declined so dramatically over the last 30 years, it's astonishing. I was just reading someplace, I won't have this stat exact, so don't, don't quote me on it, but in the Christian Forum Church, I think the stat was that now 17% of Christian Forum members attend an evening worship service. So I just want to put that to you. What happened in the last 30 years? Was there some new revelation that we discovered in the Bible? Was there a fresh movement of the Holy Spirit that people suddenly woke up to the fact that to be in the house of God with God's people and participating in the means of grace was now not a wise use of time? So what was the new revelation? What was the new insight? And I put to you, there was no new insight whatsoever. Schedules got busy. AA sports became a big deal. If you want your kids to succeed, if he's going to be, achieve his full potential, well, the, the kid's got to go to the soccer tournament. He's got to go to the, the baseball uh, tournament. She's got to be involved in the volleyball program or she's never going to reach her full potential. And people will say that to you with a straight face. A straight face. What happened? Well, priorities shifted. Priorities shifted. I'll have a conversation with someone about evening worship attendance. And people will say, well, that's family time. As though no one could possibly argue with such a justification for neglecting God's public means of grace. It's family time needs no justification. Are you sure? Are you confident that Jesus will accept your priorities? What if Jesus would say, okay, you've expressed your priority. Let me be clear about my principle. No one who places family over me can be my disciple. See, I'm, I'm saying, what makes us so confident that family time, which usually means recreation time, is a priority that is acceptable to the one who left his father's side to come and give his life to create the family of God? What about his family? You see, what if, if 
your family time priority on a Sunday afternoon doesn't wash with him? What if he's actually offended by it? Now, I, I know I am trampling all over feet this morning. But I don't know who we think he's talking to. I don't know. When we so glibly will use that excuse in light of the fact that the vast majority of the church, it wouldn't have occurred to them, in light of the fact that we have six evenings a week for family time and we will quickly and easily say, oh yeah, but we've got things going every single night of the week. Sunday afternoon is the only time that's available. I just want to put it to you, brothers and sisters, are you sure that's going to wash? Are you sure? When Jesus says what he says here, now I, you know, some of you just might say, that's it, I'm not coming back here. I don't know what to do with this, brothers and sisters. Maybe there's some insight here into why Jesus, when he went to the cross and rose again, there were only 120 actual disciples. It's hard. It's hard stuff. If you think I'm just beating the drum, well, then come and talk to me. I don't, I don't know what to... Isn't that's what happened in West Michigan and where we think that family... Issues and family time takes precedence, and we don't blink an eye about it. And it's not just family. It's, it's all sorts of things. Young people, is your girlfriend or boyfriend helping you onto God? Or is that person a constant temptation for you to fall into sexual sin, a temptation you're failing uh, uh, to resist over and over again? And so the question is, what's it going to be? You can't serve both Jesus and your girlfriend. You can't serve both Jesus and your boyfriend. Men, what about your career? What about your success? What about your pursuit of wealth? Which is it going to be? That's what Jesus is saying. Folks, what about the movies that you give yourself to watch and entertain yourself with and the music that you, that you listen to? Now, th- th- these are just rules. Do we hear Jesus? So when Jesus says, listen to the exclusive, the exclusive language. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his family and even his own life, He cannot be my disciple. In other words, Jesus is not saying there are two tiers of Christianity, two tiers of discipleship. There's the carnal or the fleshly Christian, and there's the spiritual Christian. And and Jesus is saying, I recognize that many of you live in the carnal sphere, the fleshly sphere, where you just haven't really, you know, it just hasn't quite clicked yet, but if you would like to move up to tier two, if you'd like to be a really spiritual disciple, a serious disciple, well... You're going to have to place me first. That's not what he says. He says, unless you place me first, ultimately and truly, unless I have absolute priority in your life, you cannot be my disciple. You cannot be my disciple. 
So there it is. That's what he says. That's a hard teaching. It's a narrow door, isn't it? It's a narrow door. What does Jesus say? Strive to enter the narrow door. And just think about who Jesus is talking to. He's talking to people who are standing there with their wives and their kids. And yet, he makes this radical claim. It's a narrow door. The question is, are you willing to walk through it? Are you willing to walk through it? Now, before you answer, there's something else you need to know. The disciples' principle. Point two, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. We've come to that idea before in Luke chapter 9 where Jesus said the same thing. It is at the heart of what Jesus means when he thinks about a disciple. He thinks about somebody carrying a cross. In order to follow Jesus, you see, is to follow a crucified Jesus. It's to follow the Jesus who set aside the glory of heaven. It's to follow a Jesus who willingly came near to those who hated him and bore with this, the stench and filth of human sin and who went to a cross, was nailed there, though he had done nothing wrong, suffering the greatest injustice in the history of the world. Someone who willingly bore the wrath of God for sinners. Friends, those are not the unfortunate realities of Jesus' life. Those aren't things that tragically happened to, them, to him. That was the purpose of his life. He chose those things. He purposed those things. He embraced those things. He picked up that cross on his way out of heaven and into a virgin's womb. He committed himself to be a disciple of the Father. And he carried that cross every step, every day, in every decision, every moment, gladly subjecting himself to do his Father's will. No more, no less, even to death on a cross. So his crucifixion, you see, wasn't the tragedy that ended his life. It was the glorious design and purpose that defined his life. He's a crucified Savior. And so Jesus now, our cross-bearing Savior, says, whoever does not do this thing, who does not, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And the, the verb tense here is, is, it speaks of ongoing activity. This isn't something you do when you make profession of faith or when you were first saved. This is the everyday activity of being a disciple. It's a pattern of life. So being a disciple involves an ongoing execution, a continual crucifying of self, self-interest, self-desire, self-will. People use the term, bearing my cross, uh, to refer to some difficulty, some hardship that they have in their life, and they'll say, well, that's just my cross to bear. Well, it might be, but that has nothing to do with what Jesus is saying here. To bear your cross is intentionally to die. Over and over and over again for Christ's sake. So David Gooding says, a man carrying his own cross along the street of some ancient city was normally a condemned criminal or a defeated rebel sentenced to death, deprived of all rights and possessions and on his way to his execution. If you saw a guy walking down the street with a cross, you did not wait for him to come back. He wasn't coming back. He was on his way to die. His life was over. And friends, that's exactly what Jesus is saying. When you come to Jesus to be a disciple of Jesus, when you come confessing your sin and submitting to his lordship, receiving his forgiveness, your life is over. It's over. You died in Christ, Paul says. 
And there's so, it's such good news. It means we died to the wrath of God. We're no longer under it. We've died to the condemnation of the law. We, we died to guilt and to, sh- to sin and shame and death. None of those things have a claim on us any longer. And you have no claim on you any longer. That's what Jesus has in mind. You died to you. And so you daily then pick up death as a pattern of life. Dying to self, dying to what you want, dying to what you think, what you're convinced you need from others. Dying to your life as you dreamed it. Dying to your future as you had planned it. Dying to your aspirations. Dying to your hopes. It all belongs to Jesus. It's all his. The thought just struck me this morning, how many marriages could be healed today, radically healed this morning, if husbands and wives, wives stopped seeking their life in their spouse, sought it in Christ, and started loving and serving their spouse instead. Just dying to what you think you have to have, dying to what you rights you think you need to stand for, pursue. Die, you just died all that. You give that all to Jesus, and then you pursue loving and serving your spouse as he calls you to. Again, Jesus says, if you refuse to do that, you cannot be a disciple. Verse 33, anyone who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Geldenice puts it like this, every disciple must relinquish, relinquish all his possessions, not nearly money and material things, but also his dear ones and everything that his heart clings to, yea, even his own life, his own desires, plans, ideals, and interests. This does not mean that he must sell all his possessions or desert his dear ones or become a hermit. It means that he must give Christ full control over his whole life. With everything that he is and all that he possesses, he places all at Christ's disposal that he might be free, free from worldliness, free from covetousness, free from selfishness. Isn't it amazing how we can be so afraid of losing things and so unconcerned about losing our soul? We're afraid of losing our rights, we're afraid of losing our wealth, we're afraid of losing the ability to insist on how we use our time and how we use our talents and what we pursue. All those things we're afraid of losing. And it doesn't really concern us that we might lose our soul. And so we make deals with God and with our conscience. We'll give up this, but we're going to hold on to that. We'll let God have rule in this area, but not over here. We'll die in this situation, but not in that one. There's a principle at stake over here. We, gotta, we, got, we can't give that one up. Just a question for, for you this morning. If you've been trying to do that, aren't you tired? Aren't you tired? Aren't you tired of making deals with God? Aren't you tired of trying to keep both God and yourself happy? Aren't you tired of straddling the line? Tried, tired of negotiating compromises? Brothers and sisters, I want to ask you, what if you just renounced it all? Whatever it is that you're worried about, whatever it is that you're fighting for, whatever it is that you feel like you desperately need to have, what if you just let it go? If you just renounced it right here, right now. You, just, you laid it down right now. All of it. 
your self-centered dreams, your covetous desires, your worries, your anxiety, your health, your money, your sexuality, your career, your marriage, your children, your future. You just laid it all down at the feet of Jesus and you gave it all to him right now. My question is, has you, have you ever, ever, have you ever done that? Ever in your whole life? Have you taken everything that you are and laid it down on purpose at the feet of Jesus and left it there. Jonathan Edwards, an 18th century American pastor and theologian, wrote this when he was 19 years old. I have this day been before my God and have given myself all that I am and have to God, so that I am not in any respect my own. I have given myself clear away and have not retained anything as my own. I pray that God, for the sake of Christ, will receive me now as entirely his own. That's a frightening prayer. And it's one of the most freeing, encouraging, life-giving, helpful, spiritually powerful prayers that you will ever pray. Lord, take it all. I'm, not gonna, I'm done fighting for it. I'm done worrying about it. I'm done pursuing it. This is not my life. This is not my goal. This is not my future. You are all of that. Lay it all down. But before you do, one final point. Jesus asks you to count the cost. Count the cost. 28 through 32. Which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Talks about a guy who's going to build a tower, and he starts building the tower, and then he gets about halfway done and realizes he doesn't have what it takes, and so there it stands. And people walk by and, and they laugh at how poorly he planned these things. The same with a man going to war. Why does Jesus want you to count the cost? He means what he says here. He says, don't, don't just trot up here and say, yeah, I'm a Christian. Don't, don't just quickly sign on the dotted line, yeah, that looks good. I, I, uh, I like hanging around Christian people. I, I'm comfortable with Christian truth. I, uh, you know, I'm, I'm pursuing this or that in my life, and I think Jesus could help me with that. Don't, Jesus says, don't do that. Don't go there. Because you're going to make a fool of yourself. Because you didn't count the cost, and you're going to kind of pass on when it gets hard, and when Jesus starts demanding things, and you realize what this actually means, you're just going to bail. Which is why when persecution comes, Jesus says many will fall away. They didn't count the cost. They never thought it would come to this, that Jesus would ask that. Not losing my business. Not being mocked not going to jail, not being persecuted. You see, Jesus does not want you to be uninformed about what discipleship really means and what it really involves. And so he puts the hard things right up front, right, up, right there, bold colors, right on the top of the brochure. You see, that's not how the devil works, is it? The devil does exactly the opposite. He buries all the hard things in the very, very fine, small print on the back bottom of the brochure where nobody's going to read it. What you're going to read on the front page, right up there in bold, bright letters, is life, happiness, freedom, success. You want those things? The devil says, follow me, I'll give you the world. You can have whatever your heart desires, whether it be tawdry things like sexual pleasure or respectable things like financial peace. It does not matter to him. You just follow him, and he promises to give it to you. It's right there in the bold print, but only in the very, very fine, small print. 
Well, you see that his promise of life is actually death itself, and his freedom is nothing but bondage, and his success is everlasting loss. And so Jesus says, friends, count, count the cost. Discipleship means death to self, death to success, death to security as found in this world. We simply follow him and die to that. Now, my final question is, who would do this? Why, why would you do this? I mean, if that's really what it's about, why don't we just kind of quietly make our way out and, and say, that's not for me? Why would anyone do this? Well, do you want to live? Do you want to live? You see, friends, there's only two options in the world. You can either have yourself or you can have Jesus. You cannot have both. And if you thought the cost of discipleship was high, it's nothing, absolutely nothing compared to the cost of self-interest. A life spent serving you will cost you your soul. It will cost you an eternity in hell. It will cost you an eternity without God where the fire is not quenched and the worm dieth not. You can count on it. You see, when Jesus invites you to come and die, the wonderful truth is that he's actually inviting you to come and live. You're not losing anything when you let everything go. When you renounce it all, you don't lose anything. When you sign everything you have over to Jesus, all that you are, all that you have, when you sign over those spats that you keep having with your wife or your husband because what they're doing is just wrong and it's offensive and it hurts and you've got to take a stand. When, and when you just sign that away, it feels like dying, but it's, it's coming to life. When you sign away your success, you sign away your life, you sign away yourself. You see, Jesus promises a hundredfold return for everything that you give away. Jim Elliott, you know the story well, a young man who decided to become a missionary because he heard the call that Following Jesus was the greatest thing to do in the world. And, and so he, he did give it all away. He said, Lord, it's all yours. And he ends up in a jungle, hoping to bring the gospel to people who come with at him with spears. And he and his friends lose their life in a stream bed. And the world thinks it's a great tragedy. And Jesus sees nothing but victory. He is no fool. Elliot wrote seven years before he died, he is no fool who loses what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. That's a great line. He is no fool who loses what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. So how do we apply this? Well, friends, there are a thousand applications for this sermon because there are a thousand different ways that we try to hold on to our life and to our faith, try to hold on to our self-interest and follow Jesus. And it shows up in how little time and effort we give to giving ourselves away it shows up in how hard it is for us to forgive people who've hurt us, how hard it is for us to give sacrificially from our finances, how painful it is to give up a cherished sin or a favorite hobby that's just getting in the way of our responsibilities or a dear relationship that is not pleasing to God or simply our Sunday nap. It's so hard when you're trying to have your life and follow Jesus. So how are we going to change? Let me finish with this. First of all, we have to come to grips that Jesus means what he says. He means what he says. 
you remember in chapter 13, 23, Jesus says that many, many will seek to enter and will not be able to because they never went through the narrow door. There was a better way. They were convinced of it. A way where you could have it all. You could have your best life now and you could follow Jesus. They were sure of it. And they were wrong. You have to come to grips that Jesus means what he says. I, if, and, and if you won't do that, you cannot be saved. He means what he says. But secondly, realize, this is, and this is absolutely essential, realize there is a gospel for foolish disciples. There is good news for those who have foolishly tried to find their life in the things of this life. In just a few chapters, we're going to come to the story of the prodigal son. If you remember the prodigal son, raised in his father's household, recipient of all of his father's care, and yet he decided to throw it all away and seek his happiness in the things of the world, and he lost it all, and he comes to his senses, and he repents. And he says, I'm going to go back to my father. And so he turns and he goes back home, and his father runs and embraces him and welcomes him and gives him forgiveness and a robe and a future, a ring. There's good news, friends, for disciples like you and disciples like me who have been foolish in our following Jesus. The father just says, come home, come home. Is that what you want? Do you, want, do you want what Jesus promises? Then come. Come confessing your sin. Come surrendering yourself. Take yourself. Take your money. Take your relationships. Take your dreams. Take everything that you are. Get on your knees today and say, Lord, I relinquish it all to you. I sign it away to you. It's yours to do with as you please. You are the one great priority in your life. I want your self giving self-sacrificial love to be the overruling pattern and principle of my life. Save me from myself and make me a disciple. I promise you, Jesus will hear and answer that prayer. Let's bow together. Our Father in heaven, we've come to the words of our Savior Jesus Christ and they're hard words and we're not really used to hearing such hard words. And maybe some of us this morning are not sure what to do with them. Maybe we're offended. We're just deeply unsettled. Maybe we feel hopeless. We've blown it so many times. I thank you, O oh God, that there's a gospel for failing disciples, like there was a gospel for Peter who promised he would follow Jesus to death and then denied that he ever knew him in front of a young girl. And Lord, we've made those choices a thousand times. I thank you, Jesus, that you never give up on us and that you invite us again today to be a disciple, to pick up the cross again today to lay down our worries, to lay down our rights, to lay down our life, to refuse to let anything take priority over Jesus, not a husband, not a wife, not a child, not a frantic, busy world that screams out its priorities and tries to mold us in its image. Jesus, forgive us 
for our failures, but thank you so much that you can take foolish disciples and you can teach us how to follow. Father, we don't know all the ways that this could change our life, but you do. And I pray, Lord, that in the days and weeks ahead, we would see the fruit of your word as decisions are made, as we die to ourselves, and we trust in Jesus and follow him. To you be all the glory. Amen.